Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport. As you can tell by the absence of music during this intro, this is a very special episode of the podcast, a Supreme Court preview or review, depending on when you listen to this. As many of you probably know, the U.S. Supreme Court We'll hear oral arguments in the NCAA versus Alston case on March 31st, marking the first time since 1984 that the Supreme Court has heard a college sports case. Depending on how the case is decided, this could turn out to be the most important case in the history of college sports. I'll spend some time dissecting the arguments after they happen and the decision once it comes down, but I want to give everyone an overview of what this case is all about and what better way to do it and with two of the lead lawyers involved in the case. A few months ago, I had Jeff Kessler, outside counsel for the plaintiffs and partner Winston and Strawn, who will be arguing the case for the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court, on the pod to talk about the case. And before that, I had Jeff Mishkin on. Jeff Mishkin is outside counsel for the NCAA and a partner at Skadden. The two Jeffs are two of the most well-known, well-respected, and experienced sports lawyers in the country. They were on the pod at different times, But we covered a lot of the same ground, but from opposite perspectives. So what I did for this episode was to splice together portions of each of their interviews with some very quick and basic commentary from me to tie it all together. Jeff and Jeff were talking to me separately, not to each other, and they were talking to me several weeks ago. But I'm excited about this episode, both because it provides a good overview straight from the lawyers' mouths, and also because it means I've reached the stage of my podcasting career where I've started releasing my greatest hits episodes. Here we go. I'm going to start with a very basic summary of the arguments in the case. The basic issue presented to the Supreme Court is whether the NCAA's compensation restrictions for college athletes, generally known as their amateurism rules, violate federal antitrust law. The NCAA argues that their restrictions on compensation are necessary to create a line of demarcation between college and pro sports. That these limits on compensation define amateurism, which in turn defines college sports, separates it from pro sports, and makes college sports popular. And that the court should give deference to the NCAA when it is creating these amateurism rules. The plaintiffs, on the other hand, said that these compensation restrictions and amateurism rules in general are not needed to create college sports as a separate and popular product from pro sports, that there are less restrictive alternatives to creating college as distinct from pro sports, that they're clearly harmful to college athletes, and that if the NCAA wants deferential treatment under antitrust law, they have to get it from Congress, not the courts. That's the basic and probably, well, definitely oversimplified summary of the issue and the perspective of the NCAA and the plaintiffs, but that's enough for me. Now let's hear from the two Jeffs. This case may be about putting amateurism on trial, or at least having the Supreme Court decide the future of amateurism. So let's start with what amateurism is, and I'll turn it over to Jeff Mishkin, remember one of NCAA's outside counsel, to explain it. 
Sure. Let's start with the, the fundamental purpose of the NCAA. I think that's a good place to start. And that is to, as the NCAA's fundamental documents say, its purpose is to maintain uh, intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of you know the educational program and to maintain the college athlete as an integral part of the student body. And in that way, preserve uh, a, a clear line of demarcation between professional sports and collegiate sports. That's the idea, to have a different kind of a product. And that all of the rules are really based on that fundamental notion that the NCAA is trying to ensure that intercollegiate athletics are part of the educational program and that athletic competitions that it is sponsoring and promoting are distinct and different from professional sports. And, and the rules all follow from that, uh, including that you must be a student. The idea is to have real students play against real students. And that, as the Supreme Court said back in 1984 in the Board of Regents case, student ath- athletes must not be paid. It's, not, it, it's just definitional. That that's how you distinguish between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. Collegiate athletes do not get paid to play their sport. The pro-competitive justification for creating this distinction is that it, it increases consumer choice. It gives consumers, uh, you know, different products to choose from, and that was the basis of the Supreme Court's analysis in Board of Regents when they talked about the eligibility rules. That case had to do more with television broadcast, but there was a segment of that of that case devoted to eligibility rules. And it said that because the NCAA is creating a separate and distinct and different product from professional sports, it is creating, enabling consumers to have a choice. And that is pro-competitive. And, and that's the defense to an antitrust case, that you're acting in a pro-competitive way. To sum up, the NCAA's argument is that the Supreme Court in 1984 in the Board of Regents case said that college athletes must not be paid. That's what makes them college athletes. And that these amateurism rules are subject to tremendous deference by courts under antitrust law. And that there is an elevated level of antitrust protection for the NCAA. Here's how Jeff Kessler responds to that argument. They want to be elevated in antitrust protection beyond all other sports. And no case has ever held that in the labor markets that somehow they should get this. They argue they, that this comes from dicta in a Supreme Court case called Board of Regents, which had to do with their television restrictions, which were held to be antitrust violations under the rule of reason. And even though they lost that case, they go, well, there was language in that opinion which indicated that the protection of amateurism is special. And so since that's our special role, we should have extra protection against the antitrust law so that they would love to have complete immunity from the antitrust laws. But if we can't get complete immunity, please give us a rule that says basically we have complete immunity, that you should defer to whatever we decide so that there's this presumption that whatever we do is lawful in this area. One thing you heard Jeff Kessler mention there, and that's been debated for over 35 years, is whether this language in Board of Regents about college athletes not being paid was dicta. 
whether it should actually be be binding on lower courts or on the Supreme Court itself. Here's how Jeff Mishkin responds to the argument that the amateurism language in Board of Regents is dicta. Well, there's a very good argument that it's not dicta, but dicta or not, the Supreme Court said it, and they said it very clearly, and they said it at at some length. And the reason they said it, even though that case was about the television plan and the limitation on how many games schools could show, the Supreme Court really took great pains to say, but now let's distinguish that kind of antitrust problem from what is not an antitrust problem. And that is your eligibility rules, because that creates the product, that creates the separate and distinct product. Your limitations on the number of broadcasts that schools can do does not define your product. That is not necessary to maintain a distinction between professional and and collegiate sports. So I don't know, Gabe, whether it is properly dicta called dicta or not, lawyers can argue about that forever. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is the Supreme Court said it very clearly in that case and why they said it, which was to distinguish that analysis from the analysis they had made on the uh, television part of the case. Now let's back up for a second and talk about how we got to the Alston case. And you can't really talk about the Alston case without talking about O'Bannon. I guess in theory you could, but I'm choosing not to. And we'll hear a little bit from Jeff Mishkin about the O'Bannon case and then how that led to the Alston case. And just something to keep in mind is that Ed O'Bannon may end up being the Kurt Flood of college sports, although he mostly lost the relevant part of his antitrust suit. I think he gets much of the credit for the movement we're seeing right now and the fact that the Supreme Court is about to hear a case involving amateurism. So here is Jeff Mishkin on the history of O'Bannon and then eventually Alston. Let me go back to the facts of, of O'Bannon and we'll, we'll come back to the legal analysis. Uh, that case began, I think, in 2009. Um, Electronic Arts, a video game manufacturer, had, had produced and put out a game, a college basketball game, and it used avatars to represent players, but they did look a lot like players, and they used some of the same jersey numbers. And Ed O'Bannon, former great player at UCLA, brought a lawsuit claiming that he had not given permission for the use of what he said was his likeness. And perhaps more importantly, he wasn't paid. He wasn't compensated for um, that use. And so he brought a lawsuit that had two parts to it. One was a right of publicity. You're not allowed to use my name, image, and likeness without my consent. That part got settled, but the second part was an antitrust claim, the rules that prevented him from being compensated for the use of his name, image, and likeness violated the antitrust laws. As you said, O'Bannon was the first case ever to conclude that NCAA eligibility rules were an antitrust violation. More than that, it was the first case ever to really subject the NCAA to a whole full-blown rule of reason, case lasting years with discovery and and, and major trial, rather than, as other circuits have said, once you identify um, the rule at issue as one that is um, part of creating this distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports, then it's just lawful, whether you say lawful as a matter of law or simply clearly would satisfy the rule of reason because it is pro-competitive, that was a major break from other cases that the NCAA now had to justify in a rule of reason case and with evidence 
that amateurism was important to consumer demand. And in O'Bannon, the district court um, found that at least one of the NCAA's rules was stricter than necessary to accomplish that, to, to serve consumer demand. And that was at the time that O'Bannon got started, the NCAA's rules on scholarships, uh, student athletes are always permitted to get scholarships, uh, but the scholarships were limited. Uh, They were called grants and aid, and they they were limited to tuition, room and board, books, fees. They didn't pay for the full cost of attendance. And that was part of the argument that by not allowing student athletes to receive athletic scholarships up to the full cost of attendance, the NCAA was being stricter than necessary. There was a, a less restrictive alternative than that, and that was giving full cost of attendance scholarships. And so the district court in O'Bannon said, you must do that. The antitrust laws require you to go up to a full cost of attendance. And A, that was really not much of a problem by the time the district court said it, because the NCAA on its own in 2015 had permitted, was now permitting cost of attendance scholarships. The second part of of, uh, the O'Bannon decision was that the district court said, and you don't, even beyond cost of attendance, you can give up to, and she picked the number, $5,000 a year to each uh, student for compensation for their name, image, and likeness. You don't have to pay it to them while they're in school. It can be deferred. It can be put in trust. But that's what she said. The NCA had to permit $5,000 a year for each student um, for name, image, and likeness compensation. When that case got to the uh, Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit upheld the first part that said, yep, you have to go up to the uh, full cost of attendance. The antitrust laws do require that, but they do not require any payments above <clears throat> cost of attendance. So that's how O'Bannon came out. As Jeff Mishkin just described, the O'Bannon case was primarily about name, image, and likeness compensation, an issue that is very much in the news today. Alston is broader than name, image, and likeness. Alston was a challenge to essentially all of the compensation restrictions above cost of attendance on college athletes. The case gets assigned to the same judge who heard O'Bannon, Judge Wilkin, in the Northern District of California. So here's Jeff Mishkin explaining the Alston case's background. Alston got started in 2014. There were a number of cases. It was Alston filed in the uh, Northern District of California before the same judge that decided O'Bannon. There was the Jenkins case that was filed in New Jersey. There were a bunch of other companion cases. These were filed. O'Bannon had yet to be tried. But these cases were not about name, image, and likeness. They were not about Uh, one particular set of facts. This was just a frontal assault on all of the NCAA's rules uh, that were trying to maintain this distinction between collegiate and professional sports were now under attack in Austin. And and that was the basic antitrust claim that, in effect, consumers don't care about whether or not uh, college athletes get paid. Therefore, you don't have a justification for not paying them. And there was a lot of, of other arguments thrown in there that had little to do with the antitrust laws, but we can save that right, because there are obviously are public policy issues here that are very important and controversial, but they're not antitrust questions. The Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon said expressly that while the antitrust laws required the NCAA to permit scholarships or payments up to the cost of attendance, the antitrust laws do not require more. That's direct quote from the Ninth Circuit, Alston was all about getting more. 
than cost of attendance. And so the initial arguments had to do with this case has already been decided by the Ninth Circuit yeah, as a matter of either stare decisis or collateral estoppel. or you know, this, this issue is, is decided and it shouldn't be litigated again. That did not succeed. The district judge held in, uh, in Alston that uh, this was a different case, or at least it was a different time period and things had changed. I mean, nothing had changed in terms of the rules were not made any more restrictive. In fact, they'd, they'd been liberalized between O'Bannon and, and Alston, but it didn't matter. There had been changes in the NCAA's eligibility rules and the district court said that creates a new case. The rule of reason cases are fact specific. I've got new facts. I've got new lawyers. I've got a new record. O'Bannon does not prevent me from deciding this case. That was the initial argument. The Alston case goes to trial. And here's how Jeff Kessler describes what happened in the Alston trial in front of Judge Wilkin. The judge found after a 10-day trial that there was no support for the NCA's position that the restrictions which she struck down had anything to do with fan interest, promotion of the sports, revenues, or even what they call their collegiate model. That, that in fact, it's all basically a pretext. And what these restrictions are designed to do is to not pay for labor. And as any members of a cartel would not want to pay for labor. So, for example, the judge struck down restrictions that stop students from getting free computers to use in class, education-related, restrictions that stop them from getting their study abroad paid for, like the other students can get it, restrictions that stop them from getting internships relevant to their majors to do work, restrictions that stop them from getting graduate school scholarships, which other people could get in terms of this, restrictions which stop them from getting the same type of awards for academic progress that you could get for athletics. So right now, if you get to the bowl games, okay, or you win the NCAA tournament, you could get like a $750 gift card from Best Buy, right? But if you want to give someone an award for graduating, you can't get that. And what the court did, as a matter of fact, and said the restriction she struck down had nothing to do with this amateurism model or anything there, and were just restricting what these students could get. So those are the facts. Now, she did find, she did find that there is some justification for distinguishing between being a professional and being a student athlete in the college model. But what she found on that is the most important requirement was that you be a student, which we don't object to. Like no one is suggesting that schools should hire people who are not students to just play on their teams. That's not anyone's view. So she said, but if they are students, and if they get these graduate scholarships or these other things, which are going to promote their education, what's the harm in that, <laughs> right? Particularly since 
the students are generating billions of dollars in revenues, and you have a coach, let's say it's Nick Saban, I have nothing against Nick Saban, but he makes like $10 million a year, okay? 10 times or 20 times what the president of Alabama makes, by the way. And if Nick Saban, if, as a result of competition, only made $8 million a year, and $2 million could be provided in benefits to his football team players who generate for Alabama over $150, $180 million in revenue that's coming out, how could that be a bad thing? So that's the factual issue. As you just heard, Jeff Kessler asked, how can it be a bad thing if college athletes are provided additional benefits related to education, whether those are non-cash, like internships or musical equipment, or cash for academic incentives or other awards? Here's how Jeff Mishkin responded. Now, keep in mind, they were not talking to each other. They were talking to me separately in response to different questions. So this is a reenactment. No actual antitrust lawyers were harmed during the making of this podcast. But here's how Jeff Mishkin responded to Jeff Kessler's rhetorical-ish question. Where she kind of went off the rails after that was to say, but the real distinction between collegiate sports and professional sports is not that professional athletes get paid and college athletes don't. The real distinction is that professional athletes are paid unlimited amounts unrelated to education. That was her phrase. And because the NCAA does have rules <clears throat> that, that prevent payments for things that might somebody might argue is related to education, she said all those rules are no good. Now, we obviously agreed with her that our rules permitted payment for all educational expenses. If you had a legitimate educational expense, yes, that that is, you know, something that college athletes are able to get entitled to get. It doesn't, in our view, harm the distinction between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. But she said, no, this the way to look at this is professional athletes get unlimited amounts unrelated to education. And so NCAA, you are committing an antitrust violation to the extent that you prohibit payments that might be said to be related to education. Just to be clear at this point, what Judge Wilkin ruled and the Ninth Circuit affirmed was that the NCAA is permitted to continue capping payments that are unrelated to education, where they were not allowed to continue capping payments were non-cash benefits related to education, including post-eligibility internships, musical equipment, science equipment, and they were allowed to put some restrictions on cash benefits related to education. So I asked Jeff Mishkin, what are the NCAA's practical concerns with the ruling? Here's what he answered. There were really two things that she said where cash could be paid to athletes beyond their scholarships. One was these academic uh, awards and graduation awards. The second was paid internships that would be available post-eligibility, but they could be used as a basis for recruiting and that student athletes could be paid any amount, unlimited amounts for um, internships. So those were the two things that I think gave us the most problem 
in terms of undermining the distinction between collegiate athletes and professional athletes. This uh, academic awards, she said, that's related to education. But of course, if they were unlimited, I guess that could, says Judge Wilkin, undermine the distinction between collegiate and professional sports. So there has to be a limit on those. Now, the limit she came up with was something unrelated to academic awards. She looked at the permissible athletic participation awards that the NCAA allows. We do. There's a whole section of the rules about if you win a bowl game or you win the conference championship or you otherwise succeed in your season, you can go to various events and get gifts, several hundred dollars. But those are called the athletic uh, participation awards. That's always been permitted. And uh, I think it has its its genesis in trophies and the winning little league team would get a trophy and the trophy sort of morphed into a gift card and the gift card became a gift suite. It has moved, but the idea is these athletic participation awards, she said, uh, you know, if you can tolerate those, then you can tolerate your rules should be able to tolerate academic achievement awards at the same level. She found that $5,600 was the most anybody had been eligible to receive in these athletic participation awards. And so she set the limit on academic progress or graduation awards at that same um, $5,600 level. Almost everything else that's in that injunction that we're, quote, required to provide to the extent their educational expenses, you know, computers and musical instruments, that is already covered. The NCAA does not have any issue with allowing schools to, to pay for all reasonable educational expenses. And her injunction seemed to cover a lot of that, and, and that was not terribly troubling. But where it was troubling was that the internships, the paid internships, and, and the academic progress awards, limited only by the athletic achievement awards, which are for a totally different purpose, that seemed to us to fundamentally undermine the idea of, of keeping collegiate athletes separate from professional athletes. Those were the primary practical concerns for the NCAA. Then I asked Jeff Mishkin to explain why the NCAA believes the Ninth Circuit and Judge Wilkin got the case wrong on the law. It begins with the idea that this standard pulled really out of thin air, that the distinction between the right distinction between collegiate and professional sports is unlimited payments unrelated to education. That is inconsistent with Board of Regents. It's inconsistent with lots of other circuits, and it's inconsistent with the, the, the common sense understanding that the difference between professional athletes and collegiate athletes, apart from their being students, is professional athletes get paid to play. Student athletes do not get paid to play. And so that's the first problem we have with it. It is inconsistent with uh, the Supreme Court's own precedent, as well as other circuits. And of course, it undermines the very distinction that, that Judge Wilkin and the Ninth Circuit said they were agreeing with and that we could preserve. Um, the way they, this has been decided, it is not going to preserve that distinction. It's going to undermine it. So that's uh, an important part. Another important part of it is that this injunction puts the district court in a position to micromanage almost everything that happens in the NCAA. Any rule change or for the definition of what's related to education itself, we're not permitted to define that's the court's definition. So if we think something is or isn't 
related to education, we're going to have to go back to the court to find out whether it is or not. And other people can argue that it is. And we're going to be not only micromanaged by a district court, and that is not in an antitrust case, the function of the court is not to micromanage the business, is to say what is or is not consistent with the antitrust laws. One point Jeff Mishkin made during the podcast and the NCAA makes in its briefs to the Supreme Court is that the NCAA is a joint venture like pro sports leagues. The schools compete, but they also need to cooperate for college sports to exist. Here's how Jeff Mishkin described that. If they are not competing, if they're cooperating, as in a joint venture where they're creating a new product, like in this case, intercollegiate sports, and particularly we're dealing with a joint venture, it by definition is a, it's an enterprise created by competitors to create a product that not, the one of them couldn't, that they could only create it together. And here's Jeff Kessler's response to the NCAA's characterization of themselves as a joint venture. And we just think that's wrong because while they're actually the F, the NCAA is entitled, in my view, to less antitrust deference than the NFL or the NBA or the NHL. Now, why is that? The NBA and the NHL, they're actually joint ventures in the output market. You know, they're a league, the league runs itself, has a specific league product, and at least as they're competing outwardly, they're a joint venture. Despite that fact, in the labor market, they're viewed as competitors, and they're subject to the rule of reason. The NCAA is not even a league. It's not a joint venture in that self. Each of the conferences run themselves as their own league. The closest thing they have is the NCAA tournament. But that's not a league. That's just an event. That's no different from a tennis promoter running an event and inviting all the athletes to participate. So they invite the teams to participate in their event. That's not the leagues. The leagues in basketball are run individually by the conferences. And one of the things we argued in our case, which the court accepted, is that conferences can compete with each other. So the SEC may have different rules. In fact, they should have different rules than the Ivy League, even though they're both technically leagues that send teams to the NCAA tournament. They are not the same competitive animal. But you allow the individual leagues, the conferences to set that, there's really no justification for the NCAA to be the one because all the NCAA is doing is restricting the SEC, which generates billions of dollars from you know spending their money on players because the Patriot League doesn't generate virtually any money from their sports. And they're not in the same business. Another argument that the NCAA makes is that a risk of applying antitrust law to them, the way it's applied to traditional competitors, is that they will be sued every time they reach a decision. Here's Jeff Mishkin explaining that. We're going to be in probably endless litigation for several reasons. One is the amorphousness of this idea of related to education 
I, I just think that's going to keep us constantly in front of the, uh, the district court. And also the basic decision in O'Bannon and carried through in Alston that departed from the other circuits, and that is that we have to justify every eligibility rule on a full rule of reason trial. That's impossible. And that is, again, contrary to what the Supreme Court said in Board of Regents, where we're supposed to have ample latitude to superintend college sports. You cannot do it if every single change to your eligibility rules is going to trigger an antitrust suit. It's just an impossible way to operate. And and once again, it is just exactly the opposite of what the Supreme Court said or how the NCAA should operate in superintending college sports. It needs ample latitude exactly for these reasons. And here's Jeff Kessler's response to the NCAA's concern that they will be inundated with antitrust litigation. Every business faces scrutiny under the rule of reason. That's all they're describing. They have no more reason to complain for that than any other company or set of competitors in the United States. And that wraps up the preview. There's obviously a lot more to discuss, a lot more detail and nuance to the case, but hopefully this gives you some understanding of some of the arguments that you can expect to hear, or maybe helps explain some of the arguments that you heard if you're listening to this after the oral arguments took place. Again, I will plan on breaking down what happened in the Supreme Court during the oral arguments, and then obviously what happens when the decision finally comes out. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, of course, to Jeff Kessler and Jeff Mishkin for their original interviews for this podcast. And as a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast, please, on Apple Podcasts, give it five stars. If you do not enjoy the podcast, please, on Apple Podcasts, Give it five stars, and I will see you all next time between the lines.